Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Wednesday, March the 7th, 2012, and we have a great show for you today. I get a lot of questions from people sometimes asking about homesteading and how much land do you really need. I've got someone today that is raising cattle, goats, chickens, and hogs, and they have a whopping 1.5-acre homestead. They're doing all that. They're largely self-sufficient, and they have a website that's called Pint-Sized Farm. Again, pintsizedfarm.com. And uh, the young lady that's joining me today will be Shileli Infante, And uh, I'll have her in just a moment to talk about what it's like to homestead on an acre and a half and to provide a tremendous amount of your own resources off that one and a half acres. I think you'll be really impressed with how much they've done. And it's not like they're in the fertile fields of Pennsylvania or Virginia. They're doing this, folks, in New Mexico. So I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS Radio. That's M-U-R-S hyphen radio.com, MERSradio.com. Uh, what I love about MERS is it allows me to link security and secondary communications in a single package. So I have motion detectors on my property. If somebody is prowling around out there at night, then I hear alert, alert sector one or alert sector two, and I can investigate and see what's going on. That's whether it's my dog trying to escape or whether it's some prowler crawling around my back door, or maybe uh, like a listener just wrote in, maybe it's raccoons trying to get in your chicken coop. All of those things are good things to know, and you have that secondary communication with that. You also have five frequencies and five sub-frequencies. So there's 25 different frequencies you can set things to, and uh, that should give you a reasonable expectation of privacy. It's public. Uh, it's not encrypted or anything like that, but the odds that anybody's going to be in range and know which frequency to find to listen to what you're doing, very, very low. So something definitely to take check out. Again, the website is murs-radio.com. Best way to make sure you're dealing with our actual sponsor is to go to our website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on the banners of our sponsors in the right-hand margin. Speaking of that, the next sponsor of the day today is Safe Castle Royal. Everything and anything you could possibly need for your prepping, you will find at Safe Castle. From long-term storage food to tactical stuff to some garden stuff to some 12-volt stuff to go with your solar, uh, you name it, they've got it. They also have an amazing program called the Discount Buyers Club. $49 one-time, lifetime discounts from everything they sell. And guess what? Members support brigade members. You get that for free. That pretty much makes your first year of MSB, uh, if you use their discount program at all, $1. That's a huge thing. And also, it just gets better with these guys, doesn't it? Very first sponsor we ever had. The very first sponsor we ever had, Safe Castle Royal, has been here from day one, and I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. That's loyalty, so return their loyalty by giving them some business when you can. Uh, next up, I wanted to announce the uh, winners of the contest. I'm seeing your first names in states. Uh, remember, I gave away two MSBs and uh, two one-year MSBs, and I gave away uh, two packs of seeds from uh, High Mowing Organic Seeds. On the seed, Shannon in Texas 
and Justin in Colorado both won uh, two multi-packs of seeds valued at about 57 bucks from High Mowing Seeds. Again, those guys support the MSB uh, by giving you guys free shipping on all your orders. That can really add up on large orders. Uh, in fact, it's a lot better than a 10% discount. Let me tell you that. Um, the next one is uh, Kevin in Arizona and Holly in Nebraska both won free one-year memberships in the Member Support Brigade. Uh, again, real quick at the end here, if you're not yet a member of the Support Brigade, consider joining 50 bucks a year or $5 a month. You get access to everything right from day one. Discounts to over 32 vendors. I'm working on some more for you. Uh, Black Dragon Tactical, uh, Devin Standards Organization. Uh, I've got a deal in the works right now. I'm just waiting on them to set it up for a big discount on their body armor. Uh, the ballistic panels that go inside the uh, briefcases, that's going to be 50 bucks. And uh, the, uh, the the full body armor that you can wear that's about six hundred dollars. I think we're gonna get you over a hundred dollars off on that. And I'm working on the Roni uh, carbine uh, adapters for the Glocks, Berettas, and et cetera like that, getting you a discount there as well. So I do keep building the value of that. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, your prior service, uh, you can uh, get a special discount. Uh, for in recognition of your service, just send me an email to jack at the survival podcast.com, put military or service discount in the subject line, one or the other, and uh, tell me who you are, what you did or what you're doing, and the years that you did or didn't do it in, and uh, I'll give you a special discount code. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to now introduce our special guest. Again, her name is Shaleli Infante. And uh, she has a one-and-a-half-acre semi-urban homestead. They have three Jersey milk cows. They breed mini Jerseys. They raise American guinea hogs. They have Nigerian dwarf goats, so they're phasing those out. They raise pastured chickens in the summer for sale and for their yearly chicken needs. They produce all their own meat and dairy, 100%, folks. They do rotational grazing and supplemental feed. They feed no grain to the ruminants. They only feed sprouted grains to their hogs. The chickens get some extra organic prepared feed. They also produce much of their own vegetables, and they're increasing that every year. They put a priority on the meat first. Uh, so they're just now getting around to some of that. They never buy any oil except for olive oil for salad dressing. They use lard, butter, and tallow for all of their uh, fat needs. They also do some butchering workshops to help people learn. She's here today to talk to us about backyard livestock, sustainability of food production, and some of the sustainability coming from producing food for others and utilizing income from that to feed your animals. They have, a, again, a great organization called PintSizedFarm.com. You can get by their website and check it out. Uh, really excited about this interview, if you can't tell, because that's an awful lot to do on an acre and a half. Hey, Shillelagh, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, um, I was just telling people, I mean, you guys don't have a lot of land. We have a lot of folks on uh, the forum and the community that are looking, you know, one day have that 80 acres or 40 acres or even 20 acres. But you guys are doing an amazing amount of stuff on a one-and-a-half-acre farm. You want to just talk a little bit about some of your some of the things that you, you guys produce on an acre and a half? Sure. Um, we have three milk cows. And so with that, I produce milk. I don't produce milk. I steal it from the cows. But um, <laughs> And so we uh, we make cheese, hard cheeses and soft cheeses. We make butter. There's buttermilk um, and ice cream. When we were planting the fields, my kids were out there helping me, and they were, like, grumbling. And it's like, you're planting ice cream, ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting but, uh, way to look at it. Yeah. And so then we also have um, American guinea hogs, which are a heritage hog, and they're they're known as a lard hog. They have a lot of fat, which is awesome for me. I love 
fat and I love lard. So, um, but what's nice about them is they only max out to about 350 pounds and that's after about three years. So we butcher between 150 and 175 at about 10 months of age. And that's a carcass that I can handle all by myself if I don't have any help. I mean, I can put them down and string them up and skin them and gut them and cut them all up all alone if I need to. So that, that's really makes it nice. Um, and then we have Nigerian dwarf goats, which we're actually transitioning out of. They were my son's project, and now he's in college and working. And so they're they're um, they're on their way out, although it doesn't seem like it because we still have about nine of them. And we raise chickens for eggs, and then we also raise chickens for meat. Every year we raise um, 150 chickens, 50 for us, 25 for my folks, and we sell 75 to um, people you know that want to come by on the day of butcher. Okay. And sometimes we raise turkeys, sometimes we raise ducks, depending on what predators we have that make that happen or not. And how are you able to do this much on, you know, an acre and a half? I mean, it's not that's not a tiny piece of land, but it's not huge. Um, I, I mean, are, you mentioned, like, planting the fields for the cows, and then that's going to end up making ice cream. So are you are you pretty much giving them most of their diet from grazing, or are you having to bring in some supplemental hay and stuff like that? Oh, we definitely bring in supplemental hay. Um, we, yeah, we bring in about four tons of hay a month. And and so that, you know, we when we have grass, we what I do is we have about an acre in pasture. And so when we have grass, I have it set up so that from the barnyard where we have the water and um, the feeder, we would make, with electric netting, we make... Um, a walkway for them to go out to each section and every day when there's grass I move them to a different section and then put up a back fence so they can't go back to the previously eaten section. And so they just get a taste of of the grass. It's not it, it does contribute somewhat to their diet but not a whole lot. So you did a paddock shift there with and, and how yes. many how many of these little jerseys are you running? We have three miniature jerseys and I've got one bull now. Um okay. and so and we've we've done we raised beef for us to eat and up until now we've traded with a farmer who didn't have dairy cows and he would get milk and we would get grazing for our for our steer um he now has dairy cows so we're gonna have to figure something else something out, else out to feed the, the the meat steer every year is that what you're doing maybe one right. year a year yeah well it's been like one every two years because cows don't read the books that i read and don't get pregnant when i tell them to oh i see so <laughs> And the breeding aspect is finally starting to come to, like, this whole process of what I've been trying to do over, you know, it's been almost six years now, and I've finally the breeding piece is coming in. And I chose miniature jerseys because they're a hardier breed. They're like the original jerseys that came from the Jersey Island, and they haven't been bred up for dairies. And um, I can feed them and get milk without having to feed them grain. I can just do grass and pasture, hay and pasture. And so... Um, a lot of, like, the modern jerseys, if you get one, like, a cold cow from a dairy, you're probably going to have to feed grain no matter what because they've been bred up to produce that milk irregardless of what their inputs are, and so they'll take it from their body and get sick. Whereas my girls, they're metabolically um, balanced. If the bale of hay they get is awesome, I get more milk in the bucket. If it's terrible, I get less milk. If it's cold out, I get less milk. If it's perfect temperature, I'll get more milk. You know, so they respond to their environment and their inputs, and I don't have to worry about them getting sick. How big is the, sick. 
Yeah, how big is a miniature jersey? I mean, what are what are their like size when they're fully grown? Um, to qualify as a miniature jersey, they must be under forty six inches at the hip or under. Okay. At three years of age, they still some of them still continue to go. Like I have one girl, um, I have actually the best cow in the world, and I was so lucky that she was the first cow I ever got, and I'm um, just amazed that I have her. <laughs> Um, she's 47 inches now and 40, three years of age, she was 46 inches, but she grew a little bit. Um, and Did she one snuggling with you on the front page of your site? Yes. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's my girl. Um, I drove to Virginia to get her and, um, but anyway, so they can be, she's about 700 pounds and then I've got a little one that's actually 600 pounds, but she's 43 inches which is quite a bit smaller. And then I've got one that's in between the two, and she's about 500 pounds. She's just a smaller cow, you know, frame-wise. I prefer those slightly larger ones for milking. You get those teeny tiny ones, and you're like, you know, you're squatting on the ground with your knees up around your ears just to get under them to milk. Yeah, milking um, a big goat or something is what that's got. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but right now we have a miniature Jersey bull, but I was, I'm actually his daddy because I, I do the inseminations now and, um, <laughs> he's tiny. So he's, um, people like to buy, like you can make more money selling the smaller ones. And so we breed down for them. But for ones that I'm going to keep, like when I replace the girls, I'll be looking for a midsize instead of a, a tiny one. So when we say mini, I think some people maybe don't get an idea. It's still a very large animal. It's just a lot smaller yes, than your full full size cows. Right. I mean, you're looking the smallest miniature that I've ever heard of. A friend of mine owns one in Nebraska, and she, I believe, is for 350 or 400 pounds, and she's 30, I think, 36 inches at the hip. Okay. And you're not going to get that much milk production from them either. I mean, you might get a couple gallons, which would be good for a small family. Um, but you, like, they're really expensive to purchase. I mean, like, I, I get my calves go from anywhere from 2000 to 3500 my heifer so, calves. So your, your meat cattle that you're, you know, raising maybe one every other year, are, are these from your Jersey offspring, or are you getting, you know, going out and buying a calf at market and raising it, you know, as a different breed, like an Angus or something, or... I've done both. Um, I've I've actually raised a uh, Jersey Holstein steer for beef, and it was fine. You don't get quite as much meat, but they're a lot cheaper to pick up, and um, you know it worked out that I had that one. And then I raised uh, the whole breeding issue before we had it more under control. Um, one of my girls, she actually won't take from AI no matter what I do. So the neighbor had an Angus bull, and I took her down there, and it was you know any baby at some point is better than. A purebred. If you, I mean, if you can't get a purebred, any baby's better than nothing. Is what I'm saying. So um, that one was a half mini Jersey, half Angus, red Angus, and we just butchered him in January. And oh my goodness, the meat is awesome. And it was about 600 pounds of meat processed. Oh wow, that's that's a significant yield. Uh, that that would do most families for most of the year for their beef needs. Yeah, yeah, we're, we hadn't had beef in two years because I won't buy meat. I mean, I might buy like some sausages or once in a while I'll buy some lunch meat, but if we don't produce it, I don't buy it. And so we've been out of beef. So we've been eating a lot of pork and a lot of chicken and a lot of goat and a lot of lamb. And we're like just, I'm trying to meter it out so that we don't run through the whole beef like in three months because we're so happy to have it now. Yeah, I understand that. I, I have a hard time living without ribeyes. A life without ribeyes is a sad life for Jack. Um, <laughs> 
So I, I, I'd have to have a few more, I guess, to, to keep in keep in stock and ribeyes. But uh, you mentioned the the hogs. Now you guys are running these uh, these guinea hogs, and uh, can you tell us maybe a little bit more about them as far as like their temperament? Um, you know, they you probably can breed them a little uh, with a little less effort than breeding cattle and and what have you. Yes, we keep a breeding pair on on the farm, and um, so we we. We name the breeding pair. We don't name anything that we're going to eat unless it's a food name. So all the babies are bacon. Okay. Every every single one is bacon. Bacon, and ham, I, sandwich. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a problem butchering. I love meat. So, I mean, like, I, I don't have a problem. But our sow is Penelope and our boar is Orwell. And we got them um, when they were two months old. We drove to Kansas and picked one up, and the other one flew in from St. Louis. And so um, a lot of things can happen now because pigs have flown. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so I raised them very friendly. Those two. I mean, they're like, if Orwell does something wrong, I can smack him on the nose, and he like acts almost like a dog, you know, that's been gotten into trouble. He's like, he cowers back and you know looks at me like, why? What you do? <laughs> um, and even when Penelope's in heat, he's safe to be around. Um, and so guinea hogs are known for their for their easy temper, and so if you have one. The, the breed association encourages you to call ones that have a, a bad temper. Okay. And so I had one sow. I, I was going to up my production of of pork, and so I had a sow that I got from someone else, and she wanted to kill me, and she tasted delicious. <laughs> I'll teach you to have an attitude if you get turned into pork chops. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I won't have it. I mean, I let her finish raising her litter, yeah. and then she got put in the freezer. Life is too short. I had a... I had a cow that wanted to to kill me too, and I I kept her for a year. And I just it's like no, thank you, I'm not doing that anymore. And I didn't eat her. She she had potential to nurse cow, so she got to go to a different farm where she could raise babies, and it was a better situation for her. So it's amazing how different breeds and even different individuals have different temperaments. I remember the uh, I don't know what kind of breed they were, but these real lean cattle that they had in uh, in Panama that they pretty much free ranged. And if you got near a calf. I mean, it was it was all out warfare with the, with the mom cow. Uh, oh, then, yeah. You know, we have these black Angus free ranging in Texas, and you have them in campgrounds. They wander right through, and they don't even don't even look at you. They don't even seem to care. Yeah, different breeds have different temperaments, and and, and individual cows too. It's just, I mean, it's amazing. Like I, Sally, the one that's my my favorite cow, the one that's on the website, the front page. She's she loves me. I mean, as much as a cow can love me, you know. I mean, yeah. she's still a cow, but she has affection for me. And um, I have to and, say, I've often called calves cute. I've never really called a cow, a full-grown cow, cute. But she's pretty cute sitting there with you. She's beautiful. She's the <laughs> most beautiful cow in the world, and I am not biased. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on these these uh, these guinea hogs, you guys you get meat from them, but you're also what uh, getting lard and and uh, other products as well. Um, well, we get the lard. We we can use them to do some tractoring for us. Like we've got a new field that we want to open up, and we've had them in there for probably almost a year now, just trying to tear up the Bermuda grass. It was just like a lawn, and we want to you know. The Bermuda is okay, but we want to add some other stuff, so we've just been letting them have at it. What's nice about the guinea hogs is they won't, they'll make a wallow. I mean, any hog will make a wallow, but they won't totally trash your field. Like, you can have them in the field, and they won't burrow through them like a, a regular hog will. Um, 
and and so you know we've used them to rough up the the turf, and then we'll go through with the tractor too. But um, they're they're just a more gentle hog, and and so we do butcher them. We butcher probably average about three or four a year. Um, the the sow will have two litters a year, and um, she probably could have more, but we let them regulate their breeding, and because she's still nursing, she doesn't come back into heat, and so the, she doesn't get bred again until she's done done with them. So it, it it actually comes out that she has a probably a litter about every eight months. Okay. And uh, well, litter is probably, what, averaging six, eight, something like that? Yeah, she likes to have seven. Um, okay. She she had ten the last time and three ended up squished and we joked that she went one two three four five six seven squish. <laughs> um, she she's only that I mean that was the largest litter she'd had um, up to that point she'd had five the first and then she kept having seven and then when she got ten it was like okay this is too much I don't know but I mean you know it happens she's 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 lost only those three out of all of her litters which is amazing. Um, you know, she's a great mama. And what's really nice about this breed is, like, a lot of farmers can get very injured or killed by their sows if they have new piglets. Like, you can't even go in the pen with them. Yeah, they can and, be really dangerous. Yeah, she, we go up and we hold them. Um, if it's a stranger, because, like, a lot of, we have a lot of families coming to the farm and the little kids like to see the pigs. And, you know, she'll, she'll like, look out. And if it's a stranger, she'll be a little more watchful. But if I'm with them, she's totally fine. We pick them up. We make them scream. Little piglet screaming is, like, the funnest yeah. thing, as long as you're the one making them scream. If you're the person standing next to them, you're like, put it down, put it down. <laughs> but, um, like, I'll, when she's nursing them, I mean, this might sound kind of weird, but, like, I'll go in and I'll spoon her when she's nursing them. And, you know, it's just it's just really sweet and special. And she, we get to be involved with them from very, very young. I think that probably the the affection you have with them and the interaction is why you have so you know even for a dog breed so little issues there. It makes me think of like our dogs. The first thing we did with them as we were bringing them up is we give them like bones and treats and stuff like that, and we'd give it to them and take it away, and give it to them and take it away. So if somebody brings their kid over to my house and they go try to dr- grab the dog's you know bone away from them, they don't they don't end up getting growled at or anything. The dog just like oh okay. Because he expects to get it back, and I think that we can have that type of husbandry with you know livestock, with with pets, with anything, if we're just smart about it. Right, you, up to a point, the pigs. Sure. It's time to feed them, and I mean, because you know sometimes we'll have as many as fourteen, depending on how many litters are you know on the ground and at different ages, and you know, like if you slip and fall during feeding time, you might not live. <laughs> yeah, they get competitive in that environment, well, so. And we've we've um, joked that we could sell their sounds, you know, to the movie industry for zombie background noise. Because like when we're going to feed them, they sound like zombies. Maybe I should get you guys to do a recording for me for our zombie special for Halloween next year. We could could work that that in. That would be fun. Yeah, totally. That would work. Yeah, it's amazing. And then once the food's in the thing, they just they're quiet. Unless one of them gets stuck in the feeder, and then like sometimes we have troughs, and one of them will get turned upside down in the feeder sometimes, and then you'll oh, just hear all kinds of squealing. It's, it's pretty entertaining. They're certainly interesting animals. I was hunting one time, and there was uh, a couple hitting a deer feeder, and uh, it was really I was waiting to see if there's any larger ones before I would take one, and uh, one was a fairly young boar. And there was a sow with some piglets, and the piglet got too close to the boar, and he just basically picked one of them up and flung it 
it looked like somebody yeah. swinging like a baseball or something and flung them about 20 feet. Uh, so they are strong animals, so I guess there's a lot of care that needs to go there. Um, but you guys only feed them sprouted grains. you want to talk about why you do that? Um, well, I just don't like to feed pre-mixed um, feeds. Like, if I don't know what's in it, if, what if the feed store's closed? I don't know. I just, I, I just like, most of those have medications and, and things in them that I just, I don't, and I don't always trust the sources of the protein, you know, like, I, so... Um, sprouts for humans as well as animals are way more nutritious and they're alive at that point. And so we sprout for four days and um, one of the awesome things about grain and seed is that it has all that stored potential energy. And so when you only sprout for four days, you still get quite a bit of that potential energy as well as you get the qualities of a live plant. Yeah, so, and- you get more bang for your buck too, don't you? Because you increase your biomass. I mean, Joel Salant, when he was on the show, was talking about trying to come up with this automated chicken feeder that would do the same thing because you end up with, you know, you buy a hundred pounds of grain and you end up with almost 400 pounds of sprouts. Yeah, it, it, um, it about, it about quadruples. Um, yeah, you, you get way more bang for your buck and then they're just healthier. I mean, like, I just, I don't have any health issues with my animals. Um, and that, that's another thing I wanted to talk about is like when you have livestock, you need to learn how to do a lot of your own vetting because vets are expensive and they don't always agree with you. Like my vet, he's one of the few in town, maybe the only one in the area that will um, treat cows and, and he's a horse vet. I mean, and he, he treats cows okay, but his philosophy is, oh, well, if she dies, you can just buy another cow, you know, where he'll, he'll spend so much time and energy and money and resources on horses, but he won't. He just not. He's not interested in cows. And it's like, uh, yeah, this is a very valuable cow. We need to take care of her and get her fixed. You know. So, yeah. um, I've learned how to do a lot of my own vetting. I do. I do my own castrations on the goats and the hogs and the steers. I do all my own vaccinations, which I don't do very many. I just do a, a little bit. I, um, I, you know, dehorn the animals. With you know, I burn off the horn buds myself. I do the branding. Um, I you know, I have sutures and all that kind of stuff. If something needs to be sewed up, which I've had to do before, and you, know, you just have to, and you have to get the medical supplies on hand and become, you know, more self-sufficient at that stuff. Because when you're doing this, you don't have the money to spend. I mean, you know, we we run pretty close to the line, and there's not a lot of extra, and so we do as much as we can ourselves. Now, do you guys sell any of your pork, or do you use it all, you know, for yourselves? Um, we, we, it's, you know, it's hard to sell it. We have to sell it on the hoof, and then they have to take mm-hmm. it to a processor. And so, um, we, we, we do some trading out with some people, and, um, and we, I provide meat for my, my parents as well, some okay. of the meat. So, um, it, it the, the laws, um, are just disgusting. I mean, you, you can't go to a farm and look at the way the animals are raised and even be there while they're being butchered and processed and decide that that's okay for your family to eat, but you can go buy a Twinkie and that's fine. <laughs> well, and I mean, oh, we had Darby Simpson on. He was talking about the way that, that mass-produced chicken is processed and it just makes me <sighs> yeah. not even want to 
envision thinking about possibly one day eating commercial chicken ever again. Um, from a cleanliness standpoint, from a quality standpoint, from a uh, just just a cruelty standpoint to the animals. I mean, you clearly have no reservations with slaughtering an animal and butchering an animal, but you still have respect for the animal, and I think that's something that's just gotten completely lost. Uh, in commercial operations. In fact, I remember Joel, I read an article by Joel Salat one time. He said, you shouldn't slaughter every day, even if you have a big operation, because you don't want to become fully desensitized to it. You want to feel something. Right. Well, and and when you eat meat, you're taking a life, and that that should be acknowledged and respected. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take that life to eat, but... Something has to die if you're going to eat meat. And most of the society is so far removed from that that it, it's just unbelievable. Um, every animal that we butcher here, we, we stun them. Well, not the chickens. Um, they still get things. But any, any um, I don't know what the right, mammal or, that gets butchered here is stunned with a twenty two rifle and then their jugular slit and they bleed out. And as they're bleeding out, I cradle their head in my lap, and I thank them for feeding our family. Um, the pigs get, the only time they ever get any processed food is right before they die because they love chicken feed, but they're not allowed to have the chicken feed. It's not that processed, but they get a bowl full of chicken feed with a beer in it. and then, then It's their last gone. meal. Yeah, and they don't know what hit them. I mean, they're yeah. they're happy, they're eating, they're, you know, they're slurping up beer, and then they're gone. I mean, and that's the reality, and I think that anybody that eats meat needs to maybe not necessarily, not everybody's cut out to do that kind of work, but you need to at least be in touch with the fact that somebody else did. And and the way you describe, like, uh, thanking the animal, it makes me, I don't know if you've ever saw Marjorie Wallcraft's DVD where she does the slaughter of the rabbits, and uh, no. she's gotten very in touch with kind of some Native American traditions and does some some very, very similar things. You know, when she takes the life of something as humble as a rabbit, I think that there's a, there's a real case for a reverence for life. And I think that it puts you more in touch with your own mortality. So really encouraged to hear you say that. And we thank the chickens too, but they don't, they don't get, um, they don't get beer and beer and chicken feed. They get chicken right. feed. But. Yeah. They, they get hung upside <laughs> down in a, in a traffic cone and then their throat slit. But, um, one of the things like when you just talked about it, Somebody else has to to do it if you're going to eat meat. I recently I posted on Facebook. I was I had like I, I make fairly elaborate meals and and I made a what seemed like an instant meal to me. I I opened up a you know a jar of spaghetti sauce that I'd canned earlier in the season and I put a spaghetti squash in the oven, you know, and made a salad and it was like oh my gosh this is so easy it was an instant meal and I was like I only had to raise a cow for two years. <laughs> or you know, I had to walk the cow down the street to the bull, you yeah. know, go through the they raise the cow for two years. I had to, you know, butcher and process that cow. I had to start seeds in January, you know, move them out, harden them off, put them in the garden, you know, plant all the herbs, harvest everything, can it, you know, and then now I have an instant meal. And it's like there is no instant food. Even Correct. if it's highly processed crap you buy from the store, somebody had to grow and prepare that food for you. Hey, Amo, and I, I, I'm really excited to see people like like yourself and other folks that are getting into producing their own food at all different levels. Whether it's somebody with an herb garden in suburbia, or someone with a micro farm like you have, or people with a little bit larger operation like Darby has, it uh, it's encouraging because it's also very discouraging when I do something like 
I go to a supermarket and then I pick up something like a chody squash or a jalapeno pepper. And then when I take it to the counter, I have to tell the 16 year old girl behind the counter who works at a grocery store what it is. Like they don't know, you know, and it's like, unless it's your first day, somebody at least has had to buy one before. And it's like, how out of touch with our food supply are we? That the person that works at the grocery store doesn't even know what the food is unless it's in a box with a label on it. Yeah. A friend of mine was selling potatoes at a farmer's market, and one of the potatoes rolled off the table to the ground, and the woman buying it said, I don't want that one that was on the ground. And she was like, there's <laughs> no in the ground. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah there, there's another one there. There was a person that wrote in to me that said that they raised chickens in their backyard, and that her neighbor came over and couldn't believe that they ate the eggs that came right out of the chicken's butt. And I was like, where does she think her eggs come from? The magical <laughs> egg factory in the sky or what? I mean, and and, and that is something that I, I think is being corrected with more and more people getting active. Now, one of the places where there's been a lot of heat lately, and you might be closer to this issue than I am, uh, is raw milk. Uh, with people having real issues with being able to just find the stuff. So do you got any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's horrible that you, you, once again, like the same with the meat, that you can't decide, go and see the farm and decide if, you, if you're happy with the level of sanitation and the conditions of the animals and be able to drink that milk. Um, a lot of people have herd shares where, um, where it's not legal to drink Raw, or to buy raw milk or sell raw milk, where a lot of places, if you own the cow, you can drink milk from your own cow. So far, that's still a preserved right, even though I know that judge was trying to say it wasn't. But um, so a lot of a lot of people that have cows in their backyard set up what's called a herd share program, where somebody actually comes in and purchases purchases a share of the herd and signs a contract, and um, they pay the farmer to board and care for their um, cow or their share of the cow month in and month out whether there's milk or not because cows have to be dried up for um, two months before they give birth and they get to drink their share of the milk which depends on how the farmer works it out it could be a gallon a week or half a gallon or two gallons a week and they have to come and pick it up from the farm and provide their own containers and so that's that's a way that a lot of farmers can afford to keep cows and other livestock by you know those boarding fees come in and help you know cover the cost of having... So it's like a, a fractional cow. ownership in a cow. Right, right. Just like somebody exactly. might have like a fractional ownership in an airplane, because an airplane's very expensive, but, you know, 10 families can each have a 10th ownership, and if they all have a private pilot, they can all use it. So basically, the way this works is maybe two or three families fractionally own the cow, and they're entitled to their share of the produce from the cow. Right, and they're also entitled to pay for the upkeep when they're sure. in the produce the cow. <laughs> yeah, the and that, for the cow and that's the boarding. A very good, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. a very good test of this system is if, if people that have these, if their shareholders still pay when they receive either less milk or no milk for, for the dry period. So they're not, they're not buying the milk at all. They're paying for the cow no. to be taken care of, and then they're, exactly. they're acquiring their own milk from their own cow. Exactly. Well, that's interesting. Uh it's, it's a, I mean, it is a loophole. It's, it's sure to me. It's so completely inane that 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 you well, have to go for something like that. 
It, it's a loophole, but it's not a loophole like a Bahamian bank account where it's you know it, it's ridiculous in the first place that you have to go through that much angst just to be able to know the cow that produced your milk and to not have it full of RGBH. And I mean, some of the things that are allowable into the milk system, like in mass-produced milk, and I think some people would be shocked to hear this, but cows get infections in their udders, and often there's pus in the milk, and that's acceptable for USDA, you know, certified milk. Um, where I think if most people would own a cow that had an infection, they would fix the infection before they would continue to milk the cow. Right. One thing I would like to clear up about, I mean, what what they what they feed the cows and what they allow in the milk in, in commercial dairies is is pretty abhorrible. But unhappy cows, I mean, truly unhappy cows do not give milk. So, in their twisted way, they're trying to keep those cows happy. Um, you know, as happy as they can and as comfortable as they can. I mean, cows weren't weren't made to live in stockyards like that, or you know, you know, in confined spaces. But they do okay. They're not. They don't suffer horribly emotionally. They're not crazy the way chickens are. Is a good way to look. Right, at it. right. I mean, like you just you can't get milk from a cow that that doesn't isn't happy. I mean, that's just a fact. You know, like okay. when my girls are mad at me, like if I've given them a shot or. Than a palpation, they're like, you know what? No You're milk today. Milk today. Yeah. So they're like the milk Nazi. No milk for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no milk for you. But so what they're fed and the and the conditions they live in are are not natural to a cow. I mean, like I heard of one dairy that they were concerned that their cows were you know laying on the concrete so much, so they brought in they sell these water beds for cows. They're like really thick matted water beds that are on the floor so the cows can lay down on them. It's like pasture? That might be a yeah. better solution. But, you know, so they're they're trying to meet the needs in a twisted way, but it's... I just wanted, you know, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh... It's, know, it's, it, it is good to hear that at least it's not like the way chickens are treated, where they're de-beaked and, you know, they're oh. stacked on top of each other and they literally crap on top of each other. I mean, anybody that has any doubts about when you explain what the poultry industry is like... All they need to do is get their butt in their car and drive on interstate highways long enough, and sooner or later you will find a chicken truck transporting chickens. And when you do, all you have to do is look at that truck and go, oh. I mean, it's it's that – at that point – in fact, I, I've heard of people being, like, pushed away from trying to take pictures of it before. And if you go to Google and type in chicken truck and go to the image search, you'll see why. They don't want people to see this stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, the way chickens are raised is awful. And we we raise meat birds, like I said, for sale, and we can legally sell them the day of slaughter on the farm process. You know, if you come pick them up from us. Sure. And and um, we we follow uh, we're Joel Salatin's model. I mean, we've modified it some, obviously, to fit our space and, and climate and stuff. But, um, you know, so yeah, our chickens get fresh air. And the thing with the meat birds is that they're mutant birds. I mean, we, we raise them, and I don't like them, but it's... They're the rock crosses. Yeah. It's okay. amazing to be done in seven weeks. I mean, it, yeah. they have a four-and-a-half-pound bird on your dinner plate in seven-and-a-half weeks. It's hard to beat, you know, but these chickens are not, like, um, real chickens. I mean, they don't run around, and we feed them... We feed them sprouts, we feed them, you know, organic chicken feed, we feed them clabbered milk, and we have them on fresh grass every day. And um, you have to keep them 
enclosed in a tractor. I mean, because we have our spaces so small that they could potentially run free and not, you know, there, there's not a lot of predator problems. I mean, too many of them. And, but if they wander too far away, they're not going to know how to find their way back to the food. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I get why people raise them. I mean, I always looked at it. If I wanted to produce 50 birds a year, it's what I would do. My personal utilization is I want to produce a dozen uh, yeah, and I have no real timeline, and I'm not trying to make any money, so I can take a dual purpose bird like a Buff Orpington, and you know let a, let a hen raise a brood a year, and and maybe another hen raise a brood a year, and you can get a you know a bird a, a bird a month that way. Um, but it makes right. sense, and it is it, the, the thing about it is you know when you go to slaughter these rock crosses, you don't feel bad at all about it because they're kind of ready to go. They're that's kind of their life cycle. I mean, right. they're, yeah, not, they're, they're, they're not going to live a year. It, it couldn't happen. Right, and they're, some of them are dying. I mean, we lose some to heart failure. You know, you go out there like three days before slaughter, and you'll have like a seven-pound bird on its back, and it's just like, oh, man. You know, so we, we save those and feed them to the pigs, um, you know, the meat to the pigs, because we don't, we don't waste anything here. You know, you mentioned, composted. you mentioned a really interesting term there. You want to tell folks how you do this, what it actually is. You said clabbered milk. Okay, clabbered milk. Um, one of the things I love about a cow is that you can meet so many of your nutritional needs from a cow. If you, um, you, know, you have the cow, you can get milk from her. She can produce a beef cow a year for you. You know, you can put meat in your freezer. She has the, in her milk are the cultures that you can make cheese from. And if you slaughter the first calf at three days of age, I don't do this, but you can, you know, I can buy rennet, so I don't need to do this, but if you slaughter the, the, like her first calf at three days of age, and I don't know the entire process, but the stomach is what they make rennet from, animal rennet, and so you could have enough rennet to last you for years and years to make cheese, the next year you get her calf, and then you can use her own milk and create a culture, and then, you know, you can make cheddar, you can make all these cheeses, and you have the milk, and you have beef coming in, and, you know, so it's, it's no wonder Hindus worship cows. They didn't eat them, which I think, you know, I don't think they had enough food to raise enough to eat, but food for the cows. But, you know, so they're, they're like, miraculous with all the things you can get. So clabbered milk, when I first got Sally, I milked her out, and I left some of that milk, like a pint of it, on the countertop until it got thick. Raw milk won't rot. It will turn into something else. It will turn into um, clabbered milk, which is what you can make um, cottage cheese from. Um, curds and whey, you know, little Miss Muffet, that's, that's the food that you can eat. And so the first batch of clabber that comes out is, is the thickened milk. It gets thick like yogurt, and eventually it'll separate out into curds and whey. It'll be a thin liquid and then the solid white stuff. It was pretty rank. I mean, it was, it smelled kind of rotten. It wasn't really rotten. I could have eaten it and it wouldn't have hurt me, but it, it was pretty sour and nasty. So I use a little bit of that to culture the next batch. And that one was better, still not quite great. And then I used a little bit of that to culture the third batch, and then it was awesome. It's it's tart. It's not as tart as yogurt. It's a um, it's a mesophilic um, culture, so it cultures at room temperature. You just put a so you just put a piece of cheesecloth over the top or a tea towel over the top of your vessel, and you you inoculate it with just a little bit of culture. I use a quarter cup per gallon of milk. And so what we do is we, we take all of our extra milk and we skim the cream off to make butter. And then what's left is what's called skim milk for us, which is probably like whole milk in the store. And we we put it in five-gallon buckets and we add, you know, the 
the clabbered milk from the previous batch to it, and um, it cultures and it turns solid, and we scoop that out and feed it to the pigs and to the chickens. I bet they love it, too. I love it, too, actually. Like, <laughs> um, it, gets, it, sits, it just sits at room temperature, so, you know, after a week or so, it, it gets a little kind of rank because it gets yeah. some wild yeast from the air in it. But, like, you know, the first few scoops out of it, I'm like, okay, a handful for me, a handful for the pig. Yeah. <laughs> for me. It's really tasty. And you and we use that same culture um, to culture our butter. We do cultured butter, and then we have cultured buttermilk, which is just, like a miracle thing. When I used to oh, bake bread, it's your um, buttermilk. That's uh, oh, that's my secret to, to rapid sauerkraut. By the way, when I put oh, yeah. uh, cabbage in a crock, I do uh, I, I do the Bavarian with the uh, caraway seeds, and I'll just do it. Just put a tablespoon of cultured buttermilk in there, and you get a much quicker initial fermentation of of the uh, of the sauerkraut, and it just yeah, seems yeah. to come out better. Yeah, well, cultured buttermilk is better than a cold beer when you've been out working on a hot day. I mean, it's just, I, I drink it. I mean, a lot of people don't like to drink it, but it's amazing. Um, I like to marinate meat in it. I like to, um, I I use it in various cookies. I don't use it as much now because I'm not doing much baking. I've gone paleo, thanks to you. Um, so I'm not doing a whole lot of baking. But well, I can, um, I can I give it. you one for the for the paleo using buttermilk. Um, get something like a, a nut, like almonds or pecans or both, and make a nut meal. And take your chicken and roll it in buttermilk, and then roll it oh. in the nuts, and then either bake or fry that, like pan fry it or bake oh, it. Yeah. Oh my yeah, god! That's what that I've you, done. You know, and that's so much better for you than rolling it in flour. You mentioned paleo. Like you're feeding your animals kind of paleo. They're getting sprouted grains instead of grains. They're getting clabbered milk. Uh, you guys are rendering tallow, making butter, using lard. Uh, so you kind of made a shift. You used to be kind of a wheat, a wheat eating girl. And uh, you want to tell folks what it's meant for you that you've done that? Well, yeah, I'm I'm now pain free. I've I never had a diagnosis. I think I had fibromyalgia. I didn't want to get diagnosed for insurance purposes, and I didn't really go to the doctors for it. I just lived with it. But I've had pain in my bones my whole life. Um, when I was, I have memories of crying myself to sleep at night when I was three years old in pain, and I've just. You know, just had pain, and I've just gotten used to it and lived with it. And when storms would come in, I would have, I'd know several days in advance and, you know, just have really achy bones and joints. And since two weeks after going paleo, the pain quit. And um, and then I had inadvertently eaten a little bit of, of gluten, um, and I started hurting again the next day. So I have no doubt that, that the gluten is a major cause. I mean, I, I think... Taking up the legumes as well as as the grains, but um, reducing overall inflammation in my body. But it, it's changed my life. I mean, I just it's amazing how good I feel. It, it's, what I was saying to you earlier before we started the interview was it's amazing to me how I hear from so many different people that had so many very different sounding issues that made one change and had similar experiences with the recovery. I was a fat guy and I was also hypoglycemic. And I would get sweaty, and as I said earlier, my wife would call me an atomic butthole. I'd get so mad and angry and sweaty and, you know, a big, fat, angry, sweaty guy. It's not who I wanted to be. And that shift was immediate. I've heard of the one girl from Rob Wolf's show that uh, basically reversed MS symptoms. I've had plenty of people write in and say, hey, I've lost 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds or more. Um, and it just seems to me like... In spite of what the U.S. duh, is, uh, as Joel Salatin calls them, says, uh, it, it seems to just be a better way to live. Yeah, and as a homesteader now, it makes 
me think that it would be a lot easier um, to do it because, like, I always thought, well, shoot, I can't, I just don't have enough space to grow grains for my bread. Sure. You know, and I don't need bread now. <laughs> you can grow grass and feed that to the cow and eat the cow. And you get all right. these, like you're talking about the cow, you get all these great products and you know, pork, you get lard. You guys render tallow. So you want to talk a little bit about how you do that and what you guys do with your tallow? Um, yeah, the, the tallow that I, I've rendered is just the leaf fat. Um, it's around the organs of the cow. And um, you just, I just um, ran it through a, a grinder. You can, it goes a lot quicker that way. You can also just cut it up into little, like, half-inch chunks, and you chill it first. And then when it comes out of the refrigerator, it's pretty darn solid. I mean, it's, you know, it, it gets stiff in a hurry. And then you just fill a stock pot with all the chunks, and you put, um, you know, maybe an inch. It depends on how big your stock pot is, but, like, I'd probably say one-twentieth of your vessel full of water, at, you know, at the bottom of it, and that just prevents the, the first from scorching, and that water will evaporate out. And you just cook it down um, until it's oil, and then you run it through a strainer. I use cheesecloth, real cheesecloth, not the stuff you buy at the grocery store, but, like, fine, fine um, mesh cheesecloth. And um, you, I keep it in three-pound coffee cans, and you can store it at room temperature. And we cook, we cook everything in our own oils. I, I do buy olive oil for salad dressings, and that's it. Um, we we use the lard and the tallow and the butter, and I make ghee also, and that's that's what we cook with. So you can you can cook anything. Like if you are a Crisco user, you could cook anything that you would make with Crisco, with tallow, or lard. Um, the the cast iron pans are like non-stick Teflon now. They're amazing. And, um, you know, it's just good for you, and it tastes good. And Oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 we used to do it with deer. We, you know, people would throw all that stuff away, and I mean, my grandfather would have had a heart attack if he threw away the tallow, and we rendered it exactly the way that you described it, and one of the few things that I still eat that I guess you'd classify as a grain is I occasionally will eat corn, uh, not a lot of it, but on occasion, and my grandmother used to make the, uh, like the hush puppies, basically, with fried in deer tallow, and uh, oh. I just saw a video Dave Canterbury did where he was doing that out on the trail, he was using deer tallow and making... Hush puppies, and I was like, God, I'm I'm 14 years old again, eating those things in my grandma's kitchen. <laughs> except they're not here, you know. It's yeah. uh, it's amazing how much better food tastes when it's made with real, you know, real products instead of these synthetics and uh, canola oil. It's, it's rapeseed, is what it actually is. I mean, yeah. oh, that's I not designed for human consumption. It was genetically modified, one of the first genetically modified things to make it not kill you. It's uh. It's amazing right. that we've we've convinced ourselves that the most natural products, raw milk, lard, tallow, butter, cheese, are the bad products, and then the highly processed modern stuff we call whole grain because it's like one-third whole grain flour in the product is good for us. Right. Yeah, well, and, like, my my thought on oils is if it's naturally greasy, it's probably an okay oil to eat. You know, coconuts are greasy. That's a good oil. Sure. Pigs are greasy. That's a good oil. Corn, not greasy. Probably shouldn't eat it. Butter yeah. is greasy. Go ahead and eat it. You know, um, if you have to change it so much to get grease to come out of it, you shouldn't be eating it as grease. <laughs> that makes perfect sense to me. 
Uh, it really does. I, I don't know that I've ever put it that way. You said something else interesting because when I, well, I basically I kept my mouth shut about the paleo thing for like eight months because I knew I was losing weight and I didn't want to. And even though I knew I felt better like in the first month, I didn't want to come out and still be two hundred and seventy pounds. If people go, that doesn't work. Look how fat this guy is. So I just kept my mouth shut till you know I, I got to the end of it. When I when I first came out and said this is what I've done. This is this is why I'm not a big fat giant guy anymore. The first thing people said is well. Yeah, that's fine, Jack, but how are we going to homestead now? And my response was much what you said. I think it gets easier. So, I mean, have you noticed that, like, being able to feed yourself off your land is actually easier with that mindset? Um, Well, we've never grown grain for ourselves. That was something I always was wanting to do, like trying to figure out how to do that. So now I don't even have to think about that. So that part's easier. Um, We didn't have a garden the first couple of years we were here because the livestock was just so, I mean, you know, I was not necessarily a city girl, but, you know, I wasn't a farmer, and I jumped into it and got a cow and started going, you know, and so there was, the learning curve was sharp, and we also um, doubled the size of our house, and I was a general contractor on that, so anyway, you know, we finally have started gardening, and now this year, I mean, I'm like, I have my whole garden planned out, successive planting, so we get the vegetables, because we're buying a lot of vegetables, because we don't have them now, and so, like, that is so exciting, because we're going to be just... You know, we we had a garden last year, and and you know, and it was less. But you know, now it's it just opens up a whole new world of of potential food that we can produce for ourselves and that we're eating. Well, all that stuff is, is acceptable in the paleo world because it's and it's, this is what uh, like I had this epiphany when I started doing it. Like all the stuff that you can grow that's like easy to grow, that tastes really good, that's better fresh than kept around for a while is very very paleo in nature. Peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, things like that. Some like it's Tomato does have some sugar content, so you know you only eat so much of it per day or whatever. But it's all the easy stuff that everybody grows anyway. When we go outside of paleo, that's where all the hard stuff is: wheat, oats, barley. That's the complicated stuff to grow in a small space. And meat's really easy to grow. Yeah, I mean, you know, like we we've talked about, you know, if the end of days come or whatever, you know, and like, well, we have two beefs on the hoof. Like we would keep one milk cow. You know, if we sure. had to walk her up and down the freeway to graze her so she'd get enough to eat, you know, that might be somebody's full-time job. But, you know, we have a lot of potential food that we don't have to store in a freezer or in a can or on the pantry shelf because they're walking around on the hoof. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look at even small livestock like at rabbits. Um, you can't live on clover and alfalfa and do well, but a rabbit can and then the rabbit converts that to me, and now we can eat the rabbit. You know, it's so it's like it's like that's the animal's function in the food chain is to convert this high cellulose material that they can ruminate on and and, and digest in a multi-stage process, and they can digest that, and we can't. But then we can digest them, and it just seems like, duh, why are we fighting the system? I know that's the miracle of ruminants. They take the cellulose and turn it into protein. I mean, it's it's just amazing. So um, the other thing I wanted to mention with the paleo thing is, you know, I've been doing a lot of research and stuff on it and, and milk. You know, a lot of people have trouble with milk. And so I love milk. I mean, I have milk cows. I, I love milk. But I wanted to find out if milk was causing a problem for me because I also want to be healthy. And so I did a six-week milk-free period, dairy-free period. And I'm happy to say that I have no problems with milk. 
That's great. Now, when I started yeah. it, I did like the full tilt bore for about 60 days. So I did the some of the stuff Rob suggests, like no dairy and all. But I never intended like that to be permanent. I just thought, you know what, I probably have so much, because I've been eating such a processed lifestyle of food, I have so much of this crud that I need to get out of my body, I'll just go almost pure carnivore for the first 60 days, and then I'll slowly bring back other things. I don't drink a lot of milk, but it's probably because the, I don't have a source of raw milk, and I have to drink stuff from the store, so pretty much I use cream in my coffee, so that's why I may be less informed about that whole world than I would be if it was closer to home for me. Yeah, I um, I I love milk. I mean, <laughs> I can't drink store-bought milk anymore now. I mean, it's just I don't even drink cold milk very often because I drink the milk. That's like my my favorite time of the day is milking the cows. I love milking my girls, and then pouring that glass of warm milk when I come in after it's been filtered. It's um, that's. I I think that happens with a lot of stuff though, like because like my wife always was okay with like canned soups and stuff. We keep some of that stuff because. It's it's convenient, it's easy, and it is a good storage product with a long shelf life, and we don't really eat much of it anymore, so when it kind of reaches the end, we'll give it to a food bank and replace some of it, but we've gotten to more doing our own canning and stuff like that, making our own soups, but, you know, for like a couple of years, I would make soup, we'd, we'd go, we'd buy these free-range chickens, and we would eat, you know, until there was not much left, and I'd save maybe two carcasses up, and then we'd boil them, and I'd make soup, and after me making all of these natural soups and all, the one day, she was like, I don't want to cook tonight. She went back into our rotational shelf. She pulled out some can of Campbell's something or another. She heated it up, and she goes, I can't even eat this. I'm going to go try something else. So she got a different one, like a totally different soup, and she goes, I can't eat this either. She's like, you've ruined everything. You know, I'm like, no, I fixed everything. You don't want to eat. And she's like, it tastes institutionalized. You know, it, it's almost like you can taste the the processing in the food, but if yeah. you eat it all the time, you don't know it's there anymore. It's only it's like when you like if you're a smoker and you walk into a place where people smoke, you don't realize it stinks, right? But if right. you quit smoking for like a week or two or three or a month and you walk into a place where people smoke, you're like, I can't believe I used to smell that way or my house used to smell that way. And I think that the food is very much the same way that people have become. You know, you get in school, they feed you the same crud in the cafeterias and the schools, and people become institutionalized with the institutional food. But when you break it just for a couple months, it's almost like, how did I ever eat that? Yeah. Yeah, I can't go back. I mean, I, I can't imagine life without a cow or a farm. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, I guess if I if I had to change my lifestyle, I would be seeking out other farmers. And, sure. You know, there's just no going back. So, I mean, what percentage of your diet would you say is self-produced now? Probably eighty five percent. Wow. Wow. And then your biggest input that you have to bring in is, is, is hay for your cattle. Hay for the cows and the grains to sprout. Um, okay. for the animals. So I would still have to grow grains to be completely sufficient self sufficient, but I can't do that on an acre and a half. Well, I always tell people not to even sweat that. Like, find a local provider if you can, and and let them specialize yeah. what you spe- they specialize in. And you specialize in what you specialize in. Yeah, and one of the challenges I've had, I've I've gotten some of those kinks worked out, but was finding organic sources of grains for the animals. And when you're on a small scale and you can't buy a whole train car load, you know sure. the prices get high and. I've I've since found some local mills and you know we we'll drive you know up to three or four hundred miles and that's in the desert 
the food shed is about 400 miles. Like that's oh, wow. considered local because you, you, there's just no other way. Um, you know, the desert doesn't provide a lot of growing space. Yeah, it's it's a much more harsh environment. Let me ask you another question. In your estimation, with you know your three Jersey cows and maybe one steer that you're going to raise for meat a year, um, how much land do you think you would need to to get, let's say, to stop buying so much hay? Maybe only buy it during the lean parts of the year and pasture them for, let's say, the majority of their 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 food. Is it is it five acres? Is it ten? How much would you need to successfully paddock shift that many cattle? I think I could do three cows on five acres. Okay. If I had 15, then I could grow the hay and put it up for the winter and have some fields and, and grains for the for the hogs and chickens. Um, I covet 15 acres. <laughs> That's like <laughs> You and me both. Be, that would be such, I mean, 15. And here, like in other places, you think about it differently, but here it would be 15 irrigated acres. I mean, you sure. have to have the water. There's, I mean, we, we're in the valley. We're right next to the Rio Grande River. Um, you know, it's probably east of us. And, um, you know, this is the fertile land, but you still have to irrigate because it's the desert. And Absolutely. You know, I, I, sometimes I think jolts out and when he talks, he misses that because, you, know, you know, this is all they do. And I'm like, well, you're in Virginia. It, like, rains every week in the summer in Virginia. In fact, it usually rains twice. Um, you know, and even just the move we made from Texas to Arkansas, we get about twice the rainfall here in the hot springs area that we used to get in the Arlington, Texas area. And it's a huge difference. Oh, I imagine. Yeah, we get seven and a half inches a year. Oof. If you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. So I think it's really cool how much you've done with so little, though. And I think it maybe will encourage a lot of folks uh, to, to give this stuff a shot. They don't have to necessarily go to the level you have right out of the gate. In fact, you'd probably tell people to kind of pick one thing and start with that and then go to another thing and expand slowly instead of doing it all at once anyway. Right. Well, and I didn't do it all at once. I started with cows. But what, what I would recommend if people want to have an urban homestead is to find a farmer to apprentice with. I would have saved so many mistakes and time if I had done that. Um, most farmers like me love to have apprentices. I always have a few apprentices, and people just show up and they're like, "I want to work and learn." And you're like, "Okay, come on, absolutely, start doing this." And so, um, if you can find a farmer to apprentice with, you know, offer to learn how to milk so that they can have a day off once a week. I don't have a day off. I don't. You know, people are like, "Oh, I'm so glad it's Friday." It's like. Friday means more work because my husband's home for the weekend and we have projects to do and we, Gosh. you know, you know, like two weeks, two weeks ago we butchered two hogs and on Saturday and processed them and got them in the freezer on Sunday. Last weekend we butchered a bunch of roosters and old ladies on Saturday and put them in the freezer, you know, cut them all up and ground them up on Sunday, you know, and then mm-hmm. plus all the other stuff, the normal stuff, you know, so like there, it's, if you have livestock, those animals have to be cared for, whether you're sick, whether you're in town, whether you feel like taking care of them or not, especially if they're lactating animals. Um, any mother who's breastfed their baby will know that when that milk needs to come out, it needs to come, needs out, to come out. And you, you have to be committed. I mean, owning a cow is an exercise and commitment. Would you say out of all your animals, your cows are your highest maintenance animal as far as needing care from you? Yes. 
What would you say your lowest maintenance animal is, though? Probably the chickens. Okay. Um, but you have to gather eggs every day, or they'll start eating them, and they'll they'll pile up, and they'll start cracking. You know, so yeah. I mean, like everything needs care every day. The animals, the the cows need more hands-on care. I mean, you have to milk them either with a machine or by hand. Um, I've done both. I prefer hand milking. I had to get a machine when I injured my arm with tendonitis, um, but I hate the milking machine. I mean, now you you take your face. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say there's nothing like you know leaning against that sweet smelling girl and you know just milking the milking the milk out and having the 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 scent of the milk drifting up over your face and uh, it's just beautiful. What I was going to ask you here toward the end now is you are phasing out the Nigerian dwarf goats because they were one of your kids' projects. Um, what was that experience like? Are they something you'd recommend for people that maybe aren't ready to take on something like a cow? Uh, how how was it working with them? And, and did you use them just for, like, dairy, or did you use them for meat as well? Um, we used them for both. My son milked the the goats and made goat cheese. He made chev and um, would sell that to, you know, like a kind of lemonade stand type thing. You know, there was friends of the family that loved it and would buy it from him, and he, you know, made some money, put some of it away for college and other stuff, you know, and that was his spending money, too. Um, a lot of people love goat milk, and um, the first day you milk it, it's not, it, it's pretty fine. Um, but the thing is, is that no matter what you do, you know, you can, you can take care of a goat and treat her well and milk her, but you're still going to have goat milk. And, you know, a lot of people try to compare it to cow's milk, and it's not cow's milk, and it tastes different. And I don't care to drink goat milk like I care to drink cow's milk. Mm -hmm. And you just don't get the volume. So you have to have a lot more, which means goats are a lot like cats. They're very curious, they're very independent, and they're very intelligent, and they're very bratty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so in order to get volumes, if you need volume, you know, because like the Nigerians are the smallest dairy goat and they produce between a quart and a half gallon a day. I've never seen one that produces a half gallon, but that's what the literature says. Okay. We, we, we usually get a quart or a little under, but we're also share milking with their, um, but, you know, so you'd have to have a lot of goats around to get enough milk and, they're they're like I mean I don't know if you ever saw Jurassic Park but you know how the Velociraptors in there were like testing their their boundaries all the time that's yeah. how goats speak you know we sure. thought they were just scratching their backs on the fences and we realized they're making sure the fences are still tied down every single day yeah they're just waiting for an opportunity to get out it's uh, I think one of the reasons that people have been so attracted to the smaller goats is not just so much because a big goat is any real more work, but uh, the the bigger the goat, the higher the fence you need to keep them from climbing over it. Uh, they'll yeah. if they can get over or out, they'll get over or out. I've I've never really been one to want to keep. I always think they're cool, but I like them when somebody else keeps them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it just I, seems like I, too much work. There, well, you need a fence that'll hold water to keep a goat in, and if you keep a goat in ninety five percent of the time, you're a hundred percent successful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I got you. I, I do like eating them, though. So. Um. Oh, I do like eating them, too. So when we phase them out, one of the things, I have a friend that raises meat goats, and um, I'm, we're probably going to be trading pig, a piglet for a meat goat every year because I like to eat goat. I mean, I didn't used to, but, boy, 
I've developed a taste for it. And, and these, and I'm hoping that it's not just that the Nigerians I, I, that are really tasty. I'm hoping that the meat goat that we get will be tasty too. Um, I haven't ever had any different. bad stuff. I've had older ones that are kind of tough, but I haven't had any that's been bad. Um, in fact, I've even, there's some feral, uh, feral goats that run wild in Texas. Um, like Catalinas and stuff like that, and occasionally you'd get the opportunity to shoot one, and they would be a little bit tough because they're older, free-range animals, but they were still good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think part of it is that my taste buds changed when we when we tried goat. Um, it was almost twenty years ago, and we kind of dabbled in a little bit of farming then, and it you know it didn't it didn't stick. We had young kids, and it you know it was just kind of harder. But um, we didn't care for the goat, and we gave it to somebody else who liked <laughs> it, but. Now, now, I mean, it could have been the way it was butchered. It could have been yeah. feeding it food from the, you know, goat feed from the store. And, you know, now our goats don't eat any meat. They eat a little bit of sprouted grain and alfalfa, you know. So yeah. who knows? But I I like it now. I mean. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, you want to tell people how they can find out more about your farm? Um, my website is pintsizedfarm.com. And um, I do some workshops. We didn't talk about that, but I do butchering workshops and some cheese making workshops. The, the challenge I have with those, I haven't gotten too much off the ground. I mean, I've done a few of them, but I'm so busy farming that it's hard to teach people to farm. So um, a lot of times, the word gets out that I'm doing a butchering, and two or three people will show up and you know get to learn with me. So um, that's that's the best way to to learn about the farm. You can also see any animals that I have for sale. And if anybody's in the Albuquerque area and wants to learn about this stuff, send me an email, and I'll be happy to you know set up an apprenticeship. It looks like you sold most of the goats. You got one sitting there for sale, and uh, maybe I can sell the oh, last one for you. I'll, I'll make well, sure I put a link in the uh, show notes uh, today. Well, that's old stuff. I I, oh. I haven't been keeping up with. My, I mean, we have goats for sale. I mean, we oh. always have goats and pigs for sale because they breed like rabbits, but. Um, and one other thing we didn't mention, we don't have to go into it, but I do keep bees. Also, I have top bar, top bar hives, and so you know. Awesome. It's one awesome. more thing that we do here. So. Well, folks, if you want an example of how you can do more with less, check out uh, pintsizefarm.com because it's amazing what folks are doing here with uh, with a an acre and a half. And uh, Shalali, thanks for coming on the show and sharing with us all the stuff that you guys are doing. I think maybe you've given people, you know, people that are whining about only having five acres uh, might have a new uh, new vision of things after today's interview. Well, thanks for having me, Jack. It was a pleasure. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Shalali Infante, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution.